What's up? This is Elliot Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. Today I'm joined by Annie Fell, Associate Editor. Annie, I just got back from the one, the only, my favorite festival in the entire world, Pitchfork Fest in Chicago. I am super, super jealous that <laughs> I didn't get sent out. Now, now you've been before though. I have been. I went in 2014. Long before I began hosting Pitchfork Radio, I was heading to the fest as, as Nick Dawson would say, a punter, just <laughs> as a fan hanging out watching my favorite bands. And this is the fourth year the Talk House has set up backstage in the Artist VIP and recorded some of our favorite artists in conversation. We've had dynamite pairings like Brian Wilson with Carly Rae Jepsen, Kamasi Washington with Thundercat. That was hot. Lauren Mayberry of Churches with all three Heim sisters. Right. Those are some of the huge names we've recorded at Pitchfork Fest over the years. But one thing I love about Pitchfork Music Festival is that they not only bring in the legends and the massive new artists of our time, but they also bring in a lot of the coolest new artists that you maybe didn't know. The kind of artists that you'll wander over to their stage, catch them, and suddenly you have a favorite new act. Exactly. That's the coolest thing about Pitchfork. And what I tried to do with curating the conversations this year was really capture both parts of that. So we came away with six fantastic Talk House talks, including, are you ready for this? I think I am. Fleet Fox's Robin Pecknold with Nilifer Yanya. Ooh. Tierra Wack, she of Wackworld with Chicago rapper and like Frank Zappa wild motherfucker <laughs> Namdi Ogbanaya. Zola Jesus with Circuit Des Yeux. Dev Hines, a.k.a. Blood Orange with Raphael Sadiq, Vagabond with Julie Byrne, and today's episode, Michelle Zahner of Japanese Breakfast with Alex Cameron. Incredible. We're going to be rolling those conversations out over the next couple months here on the TalkHouse podcast. Now, Annie, I've had Japanese Breakfast play live on Pitchfork Radio, a stripped-down set. I've also seen them play at Juan's Basement live, but I had never seen them rock a live show with an audience. And let me tell you, they fucking brought it. It was an amazing set this year. Yeah, I've actually seen them live in Boston before, and I'm super jealous that I didn't get to see them at Pitchfork because they're an incredible live band. They really are. I can't say I was surprised because I am a huge fan of both of their records. 2016 Psychopomp and 2017's Soft Sounds from Another Planet, both flawless records. Both such absolutely gorgeous dream pop gems. Now, Psychopomp was the record that really made Japanese Breakfast name. Michelle Zahner had come up in the Philly band Little Big League in the years before, but after that band stopped working, she formed her solo dream pop act in large part to address her mother's then recent death from cancer. People really connected with Michelle's experience and she took her music around the world with the likes of Slow Dive. And then with this past album, she actually went on tour with Belle and Sebastian. Yeah, I, I thought Soft Sounds from Another Planet was just a fantastic record. It, it was somehow even more lush, somehow even more of a sheen than Psychopomp. Should we take a listen to a track from it? Let's do it. Here's one of my favorites. This is Roadhead. Beautiful stuff, right? 
So good. And, and I mean, the interesting thing here to me is that Alex Cameron is another artist that takes the ugliness of the world and somehow turns it into a beauty that people can relate to. Now a little about Alex. He's an Australian musician from Sydney, now living in New York City. He came up playing drums in other bands before deciding in his mid-20s to go solo. Right. That was when he dropped his debut LP, Jumping the Shark, released it himself, but it became an indie hit. What followed was a record deal and last year's fantastic Forced Witness. An interesting thing about this record, on Forced Witness, Alex steps into the shoes of multiple narrators, sometimes racist, sometimes misogynistic, sometimes just downright vulgar. And I sort of think of him as as like a songwriting Nabokov, so someone who sort of assumes the voice of this narrator who's who's twisted in order to unveil what they see as a fundamental truth about humanity. Yeah, it's something that can be kind of hard to listen to at times, but the two have a really interesting conversation about it. I was really glad Michelle brought it up. As I mentioned to you off mic, the first time I heard Forced Witness, some of the language really bothered me. Yeah, some of it's really frustrating to hear, but... The way that they talked about it was really interesting, and I'm super impressed and happy that Michelle brought it up. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I really liked how much Alex had thought about this. This was intentional. This is conceptual stuff Trojan-horsed through rock music. Another conceptual element that he employs is that he changes his physical appearance right. to look a lot older. I was fooled early on. I didn't know who the guy was before his first record I was came too. out. Yeah, I, I thought he was an older sort of like a Tom Waits, a haggard. Yeah, a little weathered. Bard. Yeah, yeah. Now, listeners, a couple other things to know about Alex Cameron. One of his main collaborators is a musician named Roy Malloy, who you hear playing saxophone across his records. He's also collaborated with Brandon Flowers from The Killers. Right. He's written on Killers records and Brandon has written on Alex Cameron's records. It's pretty impressive. Also, my personal favorite is his duet with Angel Olsen. Right. That was for the song Stranger's Kiss, which also for the music video featured a collaboration between Alex and his romantic partner, Jemima Kirk, a.k.a. Jessa from the show Girls. I love it. Let's take a listen to a clip from that track. If it Now, Michelle and Alex sat down in our backstage trailer and chopped it up about a lot of things. For example, the fears that crop up in their line of work. For Alex, that's the massive onstage panic attack that nearly ended his career. Yeah, and for Michelle, it's the feeling that she doesn't get proper credit for contributions to her own record sound. They also talk about evolving as live acts and the role that having more money has played in that. We hear about onstage electrocutions. What Alex and Roy blew all their money on at the start of an early American tour. And Brandon Flowers' extremely unorthodox way of recording the killer's vocals. Should we roll it? Let's roll it. Hi. <laughs> hey, Michelle. How are you? I'm good. Yeah. We've been told to speak very closely to the microphones. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> do you sing close to the microphone? I do. Yeah. You, what do they call that? A close. Do they call it riding the microphone? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Is that a thing? I don't know. I got told <laughs> I got told to sing very close. I'd just be on it, kiss mm -hmm, the thing. You mm -hmm, know? Mm -hmm. um, I noticed you play guitar on stage while you sing. I do, yeah. With, and we've just discovered that you also 
ride the microphone. Yes, yes. Like I do. Yes. Um, have you ever been electrocuted by a microphone? So badly, so much. How bad was the electrocution? I like saw white so bad. Did you stopped the show? Um, I was in Philadelphia and we played this sort of art space where there was clearly some kind of grounding issue. Mm. And I kept getting electrocuted. And then one point it was like such a violent shock that I like saw white and oh just goodness. immediately had tears in my eyes and like didn't, I was like trembling and I didn't think I was going to be able to play the show, but Aye. figured it out. And then there was a college show where we kept getting shocked. So we asked college students if we could borrow their socks. So we were like oh singing into like random college students. Like not like they went back to their dorm rooms and got clean socks. And they then, did? Yeah. And then we, we sang into them. Oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. What about you? Yeah. I get electrocuted when I play guitar mm -hmm. always. I mm -hmm. play a electroacoustic guitar. And I think there's something about it that every microphone I, I get electrocuted by. So I now oh put, I saw that you were playing a, with a, a wind cover, yeah, or whatever you yeah, want to call yeah. it, because you're scared. Because it's such a it's just a tingling yeah, sensation. Yeah, I don't yeah. like being electrocuted yeah. at all. I mean, I'm not I don't think anyone does. For like, I wouldn't go in for like if someone was mucking around with a taser, I wouldn't go like for fun. I wouldn't want to be shocked by it, you know. Do you think anyone besides like the jackass guys enjoy well, that? Well, I used to, I grew up on a farm and we had electric fences. And so oh it was fun for God. us to go yeah, and touch yeah. them. But thinking about it now, I'd be mortified. I uh, actually only saw um, the beginning of your set today. Did okay. you Did you end up playing guitar? Yeah, I played guitar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For, for, I guess I probably played on four songs or something like that. Do you enjoy the songs where you play guitar or the songs where you don't have to play guitar? I have a tendency to be very comfortable without the guitar because that's mm -hmm. kind of, I, I like to move about the stage a lot and I don't have like a guitar tech or anything with really mm -hmm. bare bones. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of like anything going wrong with my guitar on stage is like, if the guitar stops working for whatever reason or if I decide to strut around and mm -hmm. the cable mm -hmm. comes, you know, I don't, mm -hmm. so I'm like, when I'm playing guitar, I'm very much like focused on delivering the mm -hmm. song and, mm -hmm. and playing the guitar as best I can. But I'm 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 more comfortable without it because I like to dance and I like to move about and I feel like that's where I'm the most naturally comfortable on stage for yeah, sure. Yeah, I feel the same way. Do you um, are you always with the guitar? No, there are a few songs where I don't play the guitar, and uh -huh. it definitely helps that you know now there's four. We used to play as a three piece, and now we play as a four piece, so I can do that. And we uh -huh. also use backing tracks to uh, to kind of like flesh things out. Sure, sure. Um, as do you, I think. Yeah, we. I made the record Jump in the Shark with a whole bunch of synthesizers and drum machines that I just didn't even want to like entertain the idea of trying to find a replacement sound for them mm -hmm, because I love mm -hmm, them dearly. Mm -hmm. And so we send those sounds to Henry on drums and to our wedges and stuff. Didn't you used to just do it with you and Roy and yeah. you would just play to a backing track? That's right. Yeah. It was a two, we were a two-piece and uh, I got a gig opening for Foxygen uh, oh, sick, yeah. In 2015, starting in Boise, Idaho and ending in, I guess it ended in like Winston-Salem or something like that. Um, and we ended in <laughs> New York. tour. Yeah, yeah, it was odd. It was, they definitely described it to me as the secondary market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, for me, I was really excited. My first American tour ever. Mm -hmm. So I was like really... <laughs> Can't wait to go to Boise. Yeah, I was, yeah. Like, I was like, fuck it, I'll Winston -Salem, go Winston-Salem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Roy came over and I wired him money. I was still in Australia waiting for my visa. And Roy came over, he already had his, and he bought a car. And so we started, we drove from Los Angeles 
I met him in you Reno. You bought a car for the tour. Yeah, we bought a I gave Roy money thinking like buy us a car that is like going to work on tour for us. He buys like a 1988 Cadillac. <laughs> it's like black. I like spent all our money on it. <laughs> It's amazing, yeah. yeah. And so he he picked me up from Reno Airport where I landed and he's driving this old car and it was a beautiful car. It was yeah. a really, really sweet car and it lasted the whole tour. That's amazing. Um, but when we got to, by the time we got to Milwaukee, the car was... Uh, it's just you and Roy and a saxophone and like backing tracks. Yeah, we, yeah. I had an old Roland SP404. And a Cadillac, yeah. And a, That's and Cadillac. what I, yeah, I use that too, yeah. Yeah, so I had that to trigger I just put the whole entire instrumental on that and I would just press that's play that's how we used to do it too yeah. it's just I always I felt so convinced that it was so much more about the songs than how we did it mm-hmm. that's why I was mm-hmm. like I don't I'm not going to focus on the the like that you know whether or not people are concerned about who's making what sound or anything mm-hmm. like that I've, mm-hmm. I've overcome that I mm-hmm. mean I don't I think there's a place for it in, in, in my set and in anyone's set really but yeah, it was, we used to do it as a two-piece with backing track and... Which is funny because isn't Foxygen like a pretty big band? Don't they, they were play a nine-piece little... Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. We, we, designed, we designed our set in part so that we would be a really good opening act because one of our selling points was, you know, like you might like the music, but we're only two people and we're only going to need four lines right, at the mixing right. desk. On and off really quickly. Yeah. You don't even have to move There's, any of your stuff. Don't move anything. Yeah, yeah. Know? That's that, sick. How did you start out? You said you were using the 404? Yeah. Well, when I made Psychopomp, you know, I didn't have a label. I didn't have any kind of fan base. Mm-hmm. My mom had just died. So I was just in in my hometown, Eugene, just yeah. like wanting to write a record as a way to express myself and, and had no ambition at all. Yeah. And I had played in like kind of like a sort of pop punk band sure. as a four piece in Philadelphia. And then... My goodness. Yeah. And then... Um, was like, okay, well, I'm done with music because I, I had done the DIY touring thing and sleeping on floors. And like, after my mom passed away, I was like, I just don't want to do that anymore. It's like, I'm 25 years old. It's just not going to happen for me. I'm just going to make this record for myself. Like maybe press like, um, you know, 500 records and sell them over the course of the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just like mail them out of my house sure. or something. Yeah. And I was like, maybe I'll just be like Mount Erie and I'll just like run a web store like out yeah, of my yeah. apartment. And then... Yeah, it, we got invited to play South by Southwest and then we had like 10 showcases lined up and we, I had no live band. There were all of these labels that were coming, uh, all these booking agents and all the South by Southwest shit. This is before it came out? This was like, uh, we had like two track reviews or something, okay. like two singles had come out. Yeah. And it had gotten all of this attention randomly in a way that I had ne- my you know whole music career had never before, yeah. ha- and I had no band. <laughs> so I like put my husband on bass. Uh, I I met a girl who played drums, and then I just mixed the tracks on like GarageBand, mm-hmm. <laughs> and like just like total just guessing completely because we played like one live show before going to, I was gonna be just me going solo, and then I was like I'm I have to put a band together now because there's all these people that are coming and. Yeah, do we, our first showcase was like where all the people were. And then I had like a 404 where I had like bounce tracks. There were too many songs. I don't know if you had this problem, but like it was like running out of memory. So I could like only put like six. First of all, we only had like six songs yeah. that we played. But yeah. So, so wait, for, for, if anyone's listening, we're talking about a, like a type of sampler, like a, a music sampler that a DJ might use or a, certainly someone like producing electronic music would use in the studio. It like you can record things onto it and press buttons that then trigger that recording. 
So this is what we were using for mm-hmm. our backing mm-hmm. tracks. But we now were, we use the SPD, which you probably do okay. too. Okay. No. Oh, really? You still? No, we use um, we use like a, a laptop oh, that okay. sends it okay, all okay. out. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the other thing was is that the drummer had to play to a click. Mm-hmm. So she would play. <laughs> With <laughs> headphones on. We didn't know how to do it. So because like also we had to like make it. We had to split the the thing. So she would just get a click in one ear and like the track in the other ear. Oh my goodness. And it was it was just like a nightmare. Yeah. yeah. I, I And people told us we couldn't do it. And then we like found a way to like use the like a mixer to, yeah. to split the channel. I struggle with drummers wearing headphones. It's a terrible look. It's, yeah. I struggle it's not with a it because it's like I find it really um I mean I've done it myself. I've played drums with headphones. Yeah, on. yeah. And I Does your drummer play do a click? No. No. He just gets the I do sounds. feel like it must be so sad as a drummer to have to do that. Do, what do you do you use a click on Our stage? drummer is on in ears and he has a click track and a mix uh-huh. in his in his ears. Yeah. But he has like an ambient mic because I guess when you go on in ears Have you used in ears? I have used them, yeah. Yeah. yeah do you I like don't. them? Um no, I don't. Yeah. I I think that I'm I'm sure that I could sing better with them. Like yeah, if, I was going to say, like, especially for what you do, because like I'm about to go on in years yeah. at the end of this tour mm-hmm. and it's been it's a really big deal to me. So I feel like now it's so dorky, like what you notice as a musician of just like where everyone's at with their yeah. career of just like, oh, they're already I'm surprised that that person's already on in ears or whatever. Yeah. And I we should we should just we should explain this. <laughs> no, I, I, I hey. tell you why, because I when I first started playing shows um, when I was like 17 or something, we, I got to the venue and I didn't know what a sound check was. I was like, I just set my drum. I was like, do we set up a drum kit? We got supposed to go on at eight or something. And uh, and so the sound engineer was like asking me to hit things because he needed to hear what the sound was going to be like. And so if it, I guess we should explain that I didn't I didn't know that the band heard things on stage that the audience doesn't. You know, we mm-hmm. get our own mixes. We mm-hmm. like I don't want to hear the drums when necessarily. Was when was the first time I played a show? Yeah. How um, old are you? I was 17, mm-hmm. so I was probably 18 time I could play in a pub. Would have been 2000 and Was it always Alex six. Cameron or was it? No, no, I was yeah. in different, many different bands. Yeah. yeah. Were you always the singer? No, no. Well, this was the first one. I, if I started, I, I'm just, I guess it was around a similar age. I made a record while I was working full time and it was done, but I wanted it to be finished by the time I was 25. So I finished it and then... What that was, was your 2013. Job? I worked in a um, like a government legal office, which was like uh, basically responding to and investigating complaints against uh, like like misconduct in from like positions of authority, things like that. That's that's good work. I feel like. Yeah, it was really good. I was working in uh, in the office like five days a week, and then I would go home and uh, and record record the songs. So I did it over the course of about six months. The first album was this Jumping the Shark or. That's yeah. right, yeah. Um, I also heard that you used to dress up as an old man. I did. Yeah. yeah. Why? <laughs> I don't know. I think I was like, I think I was bored or something. Yeah. I, I remember being like, I remember thinking. That sounds like so much work every day. It was day. a lot of work. Yeah. I, I used to think, I, I was, I wanted a clean slate. I played in all these different bands and I'd been playing like in, in pubs and at festivals and rah, 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 rah. And so I was like, I don't really want this to be associated with anything that I've ever done before. Mm-hmm. So I, in order to convince people that I was serious about this, more serious than anything <laughs> else I'd ever done, I learned how to apply like uh, liquid latex to my face and age myself. Wow. Yeah. So how I, long would that take? I got it down to about 20 minutes. Oh my God. But it was, I'm really focused on the cheeks. I would, you, you apply it and you, you try and blow out the skin. 
and then you let it go and it wrinkles. This plastic oh, wrinkles slowly yeah, yeah. over time. I remember when I was our first tour in Europe and like seeing the posters for that tour and being like, this guy is so scary. Oh, with the wrinkles. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah You're yeah, like yeah. wearing the sunglasses. And yeah. I guess. Like, I, who is I, this guy that there's all these posters for all over these clubs in Europe? And yeah. I was like, it's really gross. We've probably been playing the same, like come up around the same time, I guess. Maybe, in terms of yeah. like you know touring and on the circuit, I see your I see your posters everywhere. Oh really? Play. Yeah. Yeah. Do you drink when you are on tour? Yeah. 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 I drink only after the show. I, only I after the show. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I'm I'm sober right now. Yeah, yeah. I, I um stopped drinking before I was going on stage because I started like it it became boring to be drunk on stage and then touring became. It was just, I love the, I need that rush of being completely sober and, and going on there and being like, this is, I'm so like here right now. There's nothing about this that is yeah. masked by anything. Yeah. You know? yeah. When, um, did, when, when did that happen? I stopped drinking before shows on tour. I put a stop to it in 2000, end of 2015. Oh, well, so it's been a long time. Yeah. Was there like a moment where you're like, I need, I enjoy yeah. this so much more now? I can tell you the moment where I was like, I need to stop doing this. Yeah. Yeah. I played. We have a, an art prize in Australia called uh, the Archibald Prize, which is a portrait prize. And I was asked to play like a set during um, the like the opening like the opening night. We were playing in the lobby while everyone went through to the portrait prize. And I drank a whole bunch of red wine before I went on stage, which is a weird drunk. Yeah, totally weird. For like really, a like, show, I feel like. like I find it quite like I'm a wired person when I'm drinking red wine. I'm like a little really. Yeah, I'm like the opposite. I'm like you go, completely like sloppy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, for some reason, I got really like, oh, I don't like this feeling. Yeah. And uh, and I played at the show, and my mom and dad were there, and I can remember my mom dropping a champagne glass, and it smashing on the floor. And then I also remember dancing a little too hard on the with the red wine in my system. I went for it in one mm -hmm, song, mm -hmm. and I launched into like an almighty panic attack on stage. Wow! Like a like legit level. Like I've I've had experience with this stuff. I'm not saying panic attack lightly. Like yeah, it was yeah. like fight or flight. Like heart rate through the roof. Yeah. Like like limbs like numb with yeah. cold. You know, and I just had to close out this set. And they'd booked us for two sets. So I came off stage, 45, first 45 minutes, full blown panic attack. Go up to the room and I'm like, man, how the hell am I supposed to go out there? I'm trying to wait for this thing to calm down, you know? And uh, it doesn't, it's just a rager. There's like a full half an hour. And walked back out, did the other set, just felt like God awful, just did it. And the next day, I booked in with a performance psychologist because I was like, I don't know if I can ever go back on stage ever again wow, after that. It yeah. was so hardcore. And he wait, said, wait, first of all, it's a performance psychologist. Yeah, yeah. There's this guy in Sydney. Specifically for... He works with musicians a lot yeah, about stage whoa. fright and about like... Oh, wow. About anxiety to do with performing. Wow. And so I was like, I'm ready to put the mic down. I can't go back out there and do this. And he, we spoke about it. And one of the first thing we agreed on was no more drinking before wow. I go on stage. because. Yeah it doesn't actually make me a, a chilled out performer to be drunk. Yeah, it yeah. kind of distorts the experience a little bit. Yeah. For me. Yeah, for sure. I actually am fond of being drunk on stage. But <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, you yeah. know, I, I've decided to remove that from the process. Yeah. Do you drink before shows? I do. Yeah. yeah, usually. I mean, I always feel kind of funny about it because I feel like a lot of my friends don't. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes me a little bit self-conscious that mm -hmm. it's funny because you would think that it would 
make you more self-conscious about not drinking. But a lot yeah. of my friends that are musicians don't. Um, and I admire that because I think that, you know, when you tour as much as we do, yeah. it's really great to n not feel like shit in the morning every day. Yeah. I, and because so much of our time is spent in the car and like mm -hmm. feeling lethargic, um, it is nice to to tone that down. Um, but yeah, our whole band is are pretty heavy drinkers. Yeah. Um, we don't do like any other drugs. We just all really enjoy drinking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But it's it's kind of like hosting a party, I feel like, where you want, like, I don't feel as fun as if I'm sober. Yeah, but yeah. I also, like, can't be a good host if I'm too drunk. So I have to find... That's a good way it's, of putting it. It's hard it. to, like, figure out the perfect amount of, like, sauced up to, like, throw a fun party, but also, yeah. like, be able to, you know, clean up afterwards and, and like, tend to everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Make sure that the pretzels are replaced. I mean, you want... If you're giving a speech, you want to be mm. loose, but you don't want to be shit -faced. Yeah, but I think that this it's a new thing, actually, this year where I... And it's funny. I, I was like asked a question today that kind of like shook me of just like, what do you, what do you want when you, when you, what are you looking for when you go and, and play a show? Mm -hmm. And I didn't start, I had this weird experience where I've just at the point in my career where I, I didn't even like aspire to the things that I'm doing now or just have kind of like already gone way above my expectations of what I could do. And now I'm just kind of in this like no man's land of just like, where is it going to go? I don't know. <clears throat> and a really big moment for me was playing this venue in Philadelphia, Union Transfer. Have you played there? I have done a, I believe I've done a support slot there or something. It's like a 1200 capacity venue in Philadelphia. Mm. And it was such a full circle moment for me to like sell that venue out. No shit, you sold it out? Yeah, we sold Holy it out. It was a really shit. big deal because I used to work coat check there and like do the concessions. That's so uh, good. Yeah, it was I like, love that. it's so crazy to like be able to, and you know, we did opening slots there and that was a big deal. And then to finally come back as a headliner and sell yeah. it out, was like really crazy. And we did this, my, you know, my old band like did a couple songs. Like I came out in the dress that I wear in one of my videos. Videos and and then like uh, at the end of the show nothing like went wrong mm -hmm. but it just wasn't like perfect and yeah. I think that my expectations for it were just so high and what I wanted from the audience was just so high mm -hmm. like completely unattainable that I I ran off stage I just was I just cried like so much for maybe you felt like, like the minutes. like the experience was wasn't as good as you wanted it to be I think it just it went so fast and I never had that moment where it was just like it sounds so bad, but like just felt pure, just like fulfilled. I'm yeah. just like, I got what I, that feeling of gratification of just like, I built this and yeah. like we're sharing something and we're all feeling together. And I'm sure like some people had that moment and I'm just, I think I was also just like so mortified that I like didn't, I'm like embarrassed to even admit this, but I didn't feel that in that moment. And it feels so wrong to play a show uh, where you don't have that. Yeah. Um, because like so much of what we do is, is muscle memory and like, uh, yeah, I don't know. It was just a really strange thing. I felt like such a phony and that like, if I don't feel like the maximum amount that I'm able to feel every night, then I failed and sure. I'm, I don't deserve to be here. But you couldn't possibly have that every day when you play over 200 shows a year, you know? Yeah, no, I will. I think like I, I've done headline shows recently in, in Sydney where, where I'm from, where I would have played my first shows and there were bigger crowds and like bigger crowds than I'd ever played there before, you know, like probably a similar size to the union transfer you're talking about going and doing your thousand people. And I feel like I, almost in a hometown show that it is like, there's something about it that makes me want to 
do such a good job that I kind of just want it to be over. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I just want this to go so well. I want to, I almost want to be like unconscious for this, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which was what you're talking about with the uh, the muscle memory thing. It's like, let, hopefully I don't get emotional or hopefully I don't subconsciously botch this because I'm actually like, I put a lot of weight on my shoulders mm-hmm. about this, you know. I've had hometown shows. I got one for you from a hometown show. Uh, I used to play in another band where I played drums and uh, we did out, we, we sold 1200 tickets in Sydney and we were really excited. We had a laptop on stage and we came out, we had our intro track, which is like this big Orteca synth, like ominous thing. You know, the crowd's cheering cause it's like we're the hometown band. We set it up, the lights are down, the walk on music stops and we're all ready to go. And the guy that triggers the like synthetic sounds and samples on the laptop, which I drum to for rhythm has forgot to plug in his laptop to the power. So he just has a dead laptop. And- This is like first song. First song. Yeah, yeah. So like the crowd, like the crowd's ready to go. The, the lights are like still dim. And it took, it, we were probably on stage for about two and a half minutes before he was able to like get his laptop back up and working and ready to go <laughs> in silence. Yeah, yeah. Cause I didn't have a microphone and no one, it was instrumental. That was like the biggest wake up call. That's like, you can't expect to get a personal gratification from a show. This has to be about the audience. It has right, to be about preparing right, for right. them. And it has to be about your relationship with them, sure. But I'm like, I, that was when I realized that this is a job, you mm-hmm. know, that I that I intend to do very well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the more that I do it, the more I realize that those um, those moments of emotional gratification are extremely rare. Yeah. And they're almost for for when you when you start out, you know? Yeah. I feel like the more exposure you have to it, the more the beast of like performance kind of lulls you into a sense of security mm-hmm. and part, I guess part of that challenge I'm realizing is to like you have to find new ways for it to be explosive for mm-hmm. yourself you mm-hmm. know? do you still get nervous for shows yeah I do for every show no you have no it, it's, a, it's a random thing like today I was nervous like okay. I get I get kind of nervous about festivals mm-hmm. um, is that because we don't get the same level of preparation you think yeah and I get, and it's it's also just like, it's not on my time, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, if it's our show, then I don't know. I, something about, fe- it's just because it's a, such a different environment. It's mm-hmm. just really different. Like the timing is different. The space is different. Yeah. You have a really quick sound check. You have a limited time. Um, yeah, everything. I, th- I think it's just like, it's such a different new thing. I yeah. haven't played a lot of festivals until this year. So it's uh-huh. still something that's kind of new for me. So I get nervous about it. I'm interested in the place where the nerves are coming from because I think that my personally my nerves originate from a place of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. But do you think that it's, is that good or bad? I'm learning to make it good because mm-hmm. it's nerves. I think you could be nervous because you're going to court or you could be nervous <laughs> because you're about to meet up with someone that you really want to see, mm-hmm. you know? So nerves aren't, Necess- nerves are the same whether it's good or it's bad it's how you respond to the nerves mm-hmm, you know like mm-hmm. if I'm sitting there you know waiting to get some results from a doctor I'd be a bad kind of nervous mm-hmm. but if I'm waiting to go on stage it's the same nervous it's just that I'm actually happy mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. one of the things the performance psychologist I saw how how long did you see I only person? saw him for like a month for like how often I would that's, see him like three seen- times a week that's a lot. I was going on yeah. tour. <laughs> yeah. I was going on tour. In Australia, we get 10 free 
um, sessions with a counselor without, without like public uh, health. Yeah. So if you go, I, I would go into my GP. I said, look, I think I'm dying. I'm having a panic attack all day, you know. And, uh, and he said, well, here's the script for 10 free sessions. Go find a shrink mm-hmm. you like, you know. But one of the things he told me was we, we explored the idea of nervousness and anxiety. And he, his theory, which I've taken on board, I've, I've bastardized it and, and, and uh, like I've turned it into my own thing. But I, I focus on the nerves and then I, th- I wonder why they're there. And they're there because I really want it to be good. Right. And to make it really good, I've got to be some kind of like satisfied or comfortable or happy. Mm-hmm. So I've like, I'm just focused on using them as energy for good instead of using them for energy to like shit myself. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> that's what I do. Yeah. In my head. Yeah. And I'm interested because I only really get nervous these days if sometimes after sound check, the sound engineer will run in five minutes before stage time and say, I'm sorry, but we lost all the sound check. <laughs> You know, with yeah. lots of information. So I've got a fresh board. I've lost everything from soundcheck. That happens often to it's, you? It's happened to us numerous times this year. Whoa, that's never happened to me actually. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah. Wait, then, this is front of house? Front of, like yeah, the yeah. whole rig. Yeah, yeah. De- site, like the monitors, front of house, the whole shit has got reset. Happened to us like twice this year. Yeah. And so we're backstage five minutes of showtime and we're basically going on to an empty slate. I think that would make, yeah, anyone nervous. And that's when I would get nervous. Yeah. That's when I'd be like, yeah. oh my God motherfucker like I'm gonna have to really trust a whole bunch of people right now because mm-hmm. we put in the work to make sure it sounds good all afternoon and now it's been completely reset so that's that's the position where I'll be nervous mm-hmm. another one would be I'll be nervous playing a hometown show probably yeah I think it's funny it's like kind of it seems like a place where you should be the least nervous because it's mm-hmm. all your friends and family so it's awful who cares yeah, yeah. yeah. it's awful because it's like it makes me feel like I'm 14 playing high school basketball or something again. You know, it makes <laughs> yeah, me feel yeah. like, oh God, I recognize that guy. Like, yeah. I would rather see no one. Right. You know, if the, when, when I started out playing, I got so nervous. I would get so rattled. And I think part of it was because it was just like eight people that I personally knew in the right, crowd. Right, right, right. And I'm going to go do something like right. I'm going to express myself in front of them. You know, yeah, yeah. that's like a... That makes me nervous doing that. Smaller crowds make me more nervous than bigger crowds. 10 times out of 10. I feel like a lot of your songs kind of take on different characters. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like there is also like, there, there must be like a personal element to it as well. Like an, any part of your life makes it into your songs or is that not interesting to you? Because a lot of my songs involve characters that are like demonstrating some kind of decrepitness or like right. down and outedness or even like downright like sort of belligerent uh, obnoxious behavior this is how i think about it i let the song go as wild as it wants and then i bring myself into the equation to give it a human side and reel it back in you know right right so that's like why any lot- good villain yeah i yeah. think a lot of my songs i feel like i'm the one that's actually like trying to say to the character in the song, like there's probably another way to approach this mm-hmm, situation, mm-hmm. you know, or there's probably another way to think about it. Mm-hmm. I think that I felt so like uh, charged and, and motivated to write these characters because I was seeing it so much and I just wasn't hearing, I, I wasn't hearing from any artist like currently, maybe a couple of different people, but I wasn't hearing enough of it. You know, I was like, we've got to be active about controlling these characters through fiction and and 
telling the story so we can see foibles and we can see qualities that must derive from somewhere, even though they're negative, you know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I think that in order to give myself the license to write those songs, I had to inject myself into them and try and like at least provide an opportunity for these people to, to alter themselves for the, yeah. for the better. Yeah. yeah. I'm interested in like, have have you had a lot of people upset at you because they take your songs at face value? That's interesting. Because I, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't ever call you, your band a parody band. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm a big fan of your albums. But I recently, I don't even want to bring it up because it's really petty, but I recently got into a big fight with a parody band. They're like a heavy metal, they're like a hair metal parody mm, band. Yeah. And they released this TC Electronic um, pedal imprint called the Pussy Melter. And okay. um, one of the, like the bio for this pedal uh, was like, we just wanted to like create a tone that was like as wet as the ladies at the front of our shows, which was like Holy shit. really <laughs> disturbing. And so a girl had like posted a petition and I just responded to it like, that's fucking disgusting. And yeah. then like all of a sudden it like got on all of like US news and like all of these like blogs. Okay. And then I had hundreds of men calling me a humorless cunt and like yeah, editing shit. our Wikipedia page and all this shit. I mean, I, I don't associate you with that kind of like negative machismo, but I, I understand like what you're exploring, but I don't know like what, what, like why that's okay. Why is it? Um, why is it not as offensive yeah, as if yeah, I yeah. released it? I mean, I don't, and I wonder if like part of it is just like, I don't believe you to be that kind of person. Sure. Um, but yeah, I'm interested in, I mean, cause that's I'm sure that there are people that are upset about like, you have one song that like says the word faggot like yeah. 20 times. And yeah. I'm sure that there are people who are really freaked out by that. Or like the first song that you played today was like, you know, being in love with a, a 17 year old mm. who's about to turn 18. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious what, like have people, how have people responded to that? And is it scary sometimes when people um, miss an, interpret that that's that's you it's it's a it's an incredible uh field to to dwell in i, I love this question i yeah. love this question yeah. deeply because my my initial th the initial thought was that when i wrote it i'm like i'm just a like a, a especially first and foremost i'm a, just a man so it's like immediately the question there is like really what right do you have to explore these subjects when often the victims from this kind of behavior are aren't men. So who, who are you to provide a voice, you know, which is an incredible question because the question is really, you know, at what point are we supposed to give fields of artistry to certain types of people? Does it matter who you are when it comes to making art? My conclusion to that was it, it doesn't. If you're making art with whatever intention or with whatever degree of quality, it's your responsibility as an artist to be able to back that up. Mm -hmm. So I felt ready, willing and able to, to talk about it. And I, and I spent a lot of time talking about it with press in interviews for the record because they were intrigued whether or not there was a character on the record or if I was going to turn up and be this person. Exactly, you know? yeah. That, that's, I think, a big difference too is that like here's this hair metal parody band who mm. in interviews are those characters. Yeah. They're not just the people singing the song they are they play those characters yeah and even when they were responding to this kind of thing it wasn't like i understand where you're coming from like you know they were staying we're in character they were staying in character of just like let's see if you like give a shit about you know like oh it's too offensive like what do you think about this shit. pedal or whatever so i mean i think it's interesting why did you decide to was there ever a moment that you thought you would stay in these kind of 
characters? Um, the only reason I, I, I like what someone like Andy Kaufman did was because he had an audience and he risked it. He had a massive like nationwide audience on SNL and, and he risked that with his, for the sake of his art. Um, I don't have a massive audience. So I, f- I feel my conclusion was like, I don't, f- I don't feel like feeding people lemons. You know, my, I, I want to make, I want to make music and I want to create uh, the environment in my live shows. That's like really warm and really rewarding. And I don't want to like, I don't want to do what I do at the expense of someone else's comfort. That's never been my goal. So the conclusion I came to was that if I'm going to be just a, a white dude writing songs, I do think that it would be more offensive in, in, in some way. It would be more upsetting to me to be a person who wasn't using my platform, no matter how small it is, to address this through my art. You know, It's one thing for me to, to retweet a cause or to like bring it up on social media, but I was like, I'm gonna put my money where my mouth is. I'm gonna put it into my art and I'm gonna, I'm gonna be able to back it up, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm not looking to like, pull the wool of someone's eyes. It's the opposite. I'm actually trying to reveal something. Exactly. I mean, that's how I interpret your music. And I think that, I think it just must be really scary because like here in a lot of ways, you're exploring these really sort of toxic masculine Mm. characters, Mm. but there must be a lot of people who interpret that as you. And that, I mean, does that not destroy you to be like (laughs) associated with this thing that, I mean, you must not really enjoy that care. I mean, you I feel like you see, I mean, you're digging into what that quality is. Yeah. 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 Or that decrepitness that you're talking about. Yeah. I'm not, I, I, I have complete faith in, if you've bought my album and, and you've come to one of our shows, then I've done enough work worldwide and seen a, enough reactions to know that if you've done those two things, then we've got a clear line of communication. People that come to our shows know what's going on, mm-hmm. you know, and they know about, the motive behind it even, they've, ex- they've expressed. So you don't have any fans who like take it really face value and are those kind of decrepit characters. And I wonder, cause I, I mean, I think a lot about, you know, Nirvana and, you know, I, I also wonder what like guided by voices think of their fan base. It's a lot of like bros and, yeah. and how, how hurtful it must be to like have a fan base that are kind of these people that you despise, but it's not really like that for you. No, yeah, no, yeah. it's the opposite. I think we've had like really, uh, diverse crowds, like yeah. I think even even age brackets been diverse. Yeah, I'm ex- really lucky. I've had yeah. a couple of moments at shows where I've had to like go into the crowd and take someone to the side and say you can't behave like that yeah. at the show. Yeah, yeah. Like we had three guys in. Um, we were in DC and we had three guys at the front that were like really jacked to be there. It was they looked like they'd taken ecstasy and they were real like sweaty and amped and they're jumping around and I like people being into the show. That's, a, that's a always rewarding. But these, then, I, then I start to see this, these guys start bumping into a, a couple, and uh, like a man and a woman. And uh, I start to see her feeling uncomfortable. And we have, we have Holiday on stage and, and Madeline. And, and Holiday has definitely expressed to me, in that moment she expressed to me like that's, I can't, I don't, I feel really uncomfortable with, with these people like bumping into mm-hmm, other people without mm-hmm, even knowing mm-hmm, what they're doing because mm-hmm. they're, they're so excited. And so we've kind of developed a, trying to attempt to, to do it warmly to tell people you have to, like that's that's just mm-hmm, not good mm-hmm, enough. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do it over the microphone with the, with, with someone who's behaving like that because I don't want to create a you dynamic where like the crowd hates right, someone. Right. But 
I do get down off mic and like bring them to me and say, this is, you just got to stop doing that, yeah. you know. How yeah. did, and they respond well. They, I think, I think in some ways they're only behaving that way so that we notice them. I think a lot of heckling comes from that. Like someone yells something evil at me. I mean, I call it evil because <laughs> it hurts my feelings. Yeah. But someone, uh, someone. Say same thing. Yeah. <laughs> someone yells out something effective that gets under my skin. You know, I, I feel. Does that happen often? People get really like, they want to see how I respond to them because I guess they're like, they're intrigued or mm -hmm, something. Mm -hmm. And I think that comes from a need to, in, a, a desire to interact one-on-one, -on -one, even though that's not the contract. I, you didn't buy a ticket to come and talk to me. You know? right, right. We did have a guy in Gothenburg recently that was against, after I'd already said to him, hey, you got to cut it out, kept going and was bumping into this girl. And then Roy said to him, come here. And Roy, Roy removed him from the show. I think I saw a video. Yeah. So <laughs> we're trying to like establish like, if you're coming to the show because you think that, because you are under the impression that me and Roy are going to be anything like the people in the songs, mm -hmm. then like we'll actually remove you. You know, like yeah. a, if security won't do it, we'll do it. If you're yeah. going to, if you are like that person that wants to feed off the characters in, in the songs and like embrace those, some certain negative qualities, then it's like, I mean, that's not at all what we're about, you know. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't even, I, w I certainly wouldn't be interested in like, capitalizing off that or anything, yeah. you know? Yeah. I definitely just want to ask at least this one question yeah. because I'm a big, or our, our merch person is a very big Brandon Flowers fan. No shit. So I, I, uh, I'm curious about your guys' relationship and, you know. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big Killers fan, so I'm, I'm excited to Me hear too. about your guys' friendship and, and what touring with them is like. And yeah. Oh, I'd be, I'd love, I could talk about yeah. that. I could talk about that for hours. Roy and I, when we were a two-piece, we played a show at a record store in, uh, where were we? we were in, I think we were in Florida. We were in Tallahassee and uh, we played a show in a record store. It's like four people. And we were loading the uh, the records that we didn't sell into the back of the sedan. And uh, <laughs> and I got a, I remember that my phone vibrated in my pocket and I got it out and it was, a, it was an email. When was this? Um, this was a jumping the shark. Era. This is, he'd heard Jump in the Shark, yeah. yeah. My phone vibrated, I looked at the phone and it was an email from Brandon Flowers, you know, after I'd had such a long relationship with his songwriting and it just said- You did? Yeah, yeah, yeah I was yeah. like, I, I mean, I think he's a, he's like a one of a kind songwriter. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it just said, um, I heard two of your songs and he just, he said something about how he really appreciated a certain element of them and, said like, say hello whenever you're around. I was like, oh my goodness, Brandon Flat. We started talking. Just over, out of nowhere. Out of nowhere, yeah. completely out of nowhere. How do you think that he heard the record? He said that he said he was on the internet. Yeah, yeah. And he, he, came, he came up and he, yeah, listened, he just yeah. clicked play and he yeah, liked it. That's so funny. It's insane to me. Yeah. Because over the next- He's in Utah? Where is he? He was in no, Vegas. Vegas. He was in Vegas, Vegas at the time. Vegas, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so he brought us out to Vegas and me and Roy had like $80 in our bank account. I didn't know how to tell him that we needed somewhere to stay. I was like, we've been staying on couches for like a year touring. Yeah, yeah. And so I was like, I'm not gonna, I, said, I wrote to him. You just came to visit. He was just like, come over. He was like, come over and if you want to do some writing or something, we'll hang out, see if it works. You know, we're just gonna get a, a gauge. So you and Roy go. Yeah. Yeah. And we go to Vegas and I write to him, I said, look, we're gonna need somewhere to stay. He said, it's already been covered. He like got us like our own apartments in a casino in <laughs> Vegas. And we were there for like a week yeah, and we worked yeah, on yeah. songs. Yeah. And, it, and Had you done that before with anyone else? No. Yeah. Oh, I, I wrote on some friends records, but 
I've, I'm not the best collaborator. It has to be a, like a chemistry that what works. What was that like? You just met him and then you like sit down and then yeah. what? He shook my hand at the door of the studio and we went in and started. Just, they have a studio. Is it in yeah. his house? Or no, it's it's a, they have a separate studio. Yeah. And uh, we wrote for like five days. We, we like, I wrote on a couple, I, wrote, I like helped on a couple of killers tracks and he sort of helped me with, with two songs on Force to Witness. Like, would you just be like, I'm working on this. Do you want to help me out with it? Or yeah. was it was it just like freeform writing? Like, oh, I want to take this one. You see, <laughs> there was one of my. I had a chorus, and I was like, I need, a, I need, I need everything else. So we, he built with me the, the so, verse so and the pre-chorus. Was this Politics of Love? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. one of my favorite songs. Yeah. And yeah, he built that with me, and then we did Running Out of Luck together. So. Yeah, I have a sneaking suspicion that he gifted me a chorus. That he had in the <laughs> in the back pocket, but for for running out of luck, yeah, because um, it's like a monster chorus that yeah, like yeah. freaked me out. That's, and which is it. like I feel like such a killer thing is they write such monster choruses yeah. for sure. But yeah. I, he was doing it in front of me. He did it on a piano, and I was like, as soon as he started singing, I was like, holy, sh-, like because we've been speaking, yeah. And then when he started singing, I was like, this guy can, this is it. This is guy has that thing that yeah. like millions of people. Love. Love and right, flock to. Yeah. And I was like, that's it, you know? It was totally it just, sold. it's just in his head. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and in his the way he sings it. Yeah, and, right, right. And Such I, a compelling voice. Yeah. yeah. And so I was like, this guy's legit. I, I was like, I wasn't sure how this was going to go down. But when he showed me something that he'd written. So you were like, I have these verses. And he's like, oh, here's an idea for a chorus. I had, a, I thought I had a song. I was like, and this is the chorus. And he was like. That's not a chorus. He was like, that's a pre-chorus. <laughs> it was like Crocodile Dundee. Yeah. <laughs> He was like, that's not a knife. This is a knife. And <laughs> and he, he was right. He was totally yeah, right. Yeah. And that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And so we've like, we've gone from that to touring with them. We've played at every continent with them, except we haven't been to Asia with them. But we went to Europe and uh, we've done US, Australia, New Zealand. How do you go over in their crowds? It's been really good. Yeah. Really good. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure we're now What's selling What's it like rooms. in arena? How are those arena tours? Is I it just it. you and them? It's just the Alex Cameron band. We play for half an hour and then the killers come on. That's so sick. It's awesome. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah. They take they took such good care yeah. of us. That's I a, hope that I found my, my arena band godparent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You will. You will. They're out there. It's like we're trying to get like adopted from the orphanage, you know. You know. You gotta just have faith that someone's coming to get yeah, us. Yeah. Um uh yeah, but the, it's been like a really good experience and um it's like, it's changed the way I, definitely changed the way I see like what it means to work in the industry. Mm-hmm. It's there just on like such a high level. And, mm-hmm. and it's also really cool to meet someone that you that you have such admiration for um, and find out that like their workflow is, you know, not totally dissimilar to yours or, or even if it is their own, it's like, oh, everyone just has their quirks and their like way of doing things. What, you know? what are your quirks and what are their quirks? I kind of write in a way where I have the microphone and my notepad and the laptop in front of me and I'm writing my, I have my melody, I'm writing my lyrics as I'm doing takes. Mm -hmm. So I'll do a take, I know the lyric and then I'll just see what happens in the next few lines if I can like become what needs to happen, you know, almost like a freestyle or something. And then I'll be like, oh, that's a really good sound. That's a really good word. And then I'll work on lyrics. So but it's kind of like, I'm not very comfortable. If you and I were just sitting here with a pen and paper, like what's the next line? I'd be like, I kind of need to be like doing the take and living the song mm-hmm, to write mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
something about Brandon, I guess I was kind of really, really surprised that he was doing a lot of his vocals on like, like just regular old microphones. It was not like a, a lot 57. of, he was just doing like, he used some Shaw microphone. He was just using yeah. like, and um, I don't know if I want to speak for him exactly, but I was also surprised that uh, he recorded his vocals with the monitors on in the room. Oh yeah. Not headphones or anything. Like the actual takes. Yeah. Just on like sure microphones with the- Just like in the room. Insane. And like Like no Neumann crazy shit happening. Nothing. Yeah. And like this monitor's on in the room. <laughs> and then yeah. I did it on my record. Cause I was like, that's awesome. If you can do it. Yeah. yeah then and so then I, I got, an, too, yeah. I got an SM7. Yeah, I love the, yeah. Which is like the Michael Jackson microphone, yeah, yeah, the broadcast yeah, yeah, yeah. one. And I was like, just leave the speakers on. <laughs> Yeah, I think this is gonna be fine. Like <laughs> Brandon does it, I'm gonna do it. You know? <laughs> so on the record, I a lot of my vocal takes have it just in the room. Yeah, with an SM7. I don't know if I've revealed something then that he's not. He's, he's gonna hate me for, but I doubt it. <laughs> that's cool. I think that's yeah. comforting. What about you? Weird quirk. Yeah. How do you record? Well, it's been different. The last record, it was a lot of writing in this in the studio. Mm -hmm. And it really helped having Craig, our, our drummer, co-produce the record with me. And uh, I mean, I really want to become like a, I don't know. I, I think that it's this an interesting thing I'm approaching with the next record. Who, who produced the last record? I did it with Jonathan Rado uh -huh. from, uh, from Foxygen. I'm interested in, in your feelings on like ownership for, so like, it's interesting that you co-wrote some songs because I've, I've never co-wrote any of my songs. Mm -hmm. And I'm also reaching this point where like, it scares me. I want to become more and more the sole producer of, of my work. You'd like to like not have anyone else touch it. You'd like to but mix I it? think it's because I think it's a selfish desire. I think it's because I want people to know that I can. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't even know if it's something that I'm particularly, I'm, I'm afraid, you know, because I also think that collaboration is such a special thing. And I think yeah. such a special part of, my last record was having someone like Craig in the room to say when I was writing a part, like, I think this is really cheesy. I'm going to scrap it and have someone just be like, no, 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 keep going. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. was hugely helpful for uh -huh. me, but there's this like sick part of me that like wants to eliminate that just to prove to myself and to other people that like I can do everything myself, you know? Do you have the sense that you want to work with a producer? Like, is that something that you want to do? Do you have producers that you like? I think that you just hope that you have, like this miracle chemistry mm. with someone. Yeah. But it's so hard. You you really have to like try it on a lot. You know? Yeah. I have that with Rado. Like yeah. it's, we have yeah. a very like comfortable. Was it, well, who is the first record? Just, just, just myself. you. Yeah. Well, I worked with some, some friends from the city. From right. Sydney. Right, yeah. Right. The, Were you the sole producer on that record? I can't remember what I, I think I said I produced it with a, with a friend of mine named Ivan mm -hmm. Vizintin, who's a Sydney like engineer and producer. But I didn't really know how to credit records then. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, when I made that album, I put the album out on a website by itself. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a record label at all. Mm -hmm. But I think in retrospect, I'm happy with that credit. I think one day I'd, I'd like to be in your headspace and be like, I'm doing this, no one's touching this. Right, you know, right. I would like to do that. Right. And I totally agree with, with where you're coming from. I think that like, if you have a burning desire to be like in charge and like prove a point you know, probably to yourself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think that that's what it is. I, mean, I think it's kind of dangerous to want to do that on a third album instead of like your first record. Yeah. Where it's just like, if I had done that on my first record, I wouldn't feel like I have to do it now. Absolutely. But wouldn't. like, yeah. uh, I think that there, I think that what is interesting, like my friend Alex G like does this mm -hmm. and uh, I've read that Grimes does this of just, 
I think that you you have like all these really crazy, super weird, very unique to your own style. If there's no one else in your room from start to finish uh, mm. of just like taking forever to get the vocal take that only you could get if it's just you mm-hmm. in a room yeah. and no one else like having any kind of opinion or like trying different things. I think that you can hear it when an artist is doing that. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious if I did that now, what what it would sound like. Maybe I mean, I'll like really, really sit in secret or something. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's like, that to me is something that's like very exciting. That, yeah, that, yeah. That but I think it's also scary because like once you have a catalog, you know, your third album isn't supposed to sound like a lo-fi. <laughs> You're not yeah. supposed to go backwards. You kind of have to like create a bigger sounding thing. I like the change a lot. And with that first record, I do feel like I made that myself. Yeah, I mean, yeah. my you know, there are other people that I've credited and who deserve the credit, but I do feel really accomplished mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would totally recommend doing it yourself. Yeah, Not, yeah. And I mean, the label, I don't know what your, your, what your plan is and if you've engaged, you know, but I would be excited to at the very least hear what you're capable of doing by yourself. Why don't yeah. you like make a record and yeah. it, they might be the demos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would yeah, totally, yeah, if I'm yeah. you, I'm totally diving like head first yeah, into yeah. like the driver's seat. Yeah, I think that that is, that is my plan. And then and then having those and bringing them somewhere else and, and elevating them if, the, if they have need. When, yeah, when I hear your music, I, I am like intrigued by what parts are yours in terms of like, because there's such this awesome like sheen on your music, I find that's like really like welcoming. And... I'd like to know which part of that is just the songwriting, you know, and which mm-hmm. part of that mm-hmm. is is production. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard when an album's been produced to be like who not not a, it's not about who did what, but it's like where is the magic coming from, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. why I'd be really intrigued to yeah, hear yeah. your cuz I do believe that that your performance is so much more than production, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the songs. Well, thank you. <laughs> Are you working on a on a record now? I am, yeah. I'm. I've got like eight new songs. Um, I'm living in Queens, in in New York, and I've just got like a Wurlitzer and a tape machine. Are you where in Queens are you? Rockaways, you know, okay. far Rockaways. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Very cool. Where are you living? I'm in Philadelphia right now. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I've been wanting to go back to New York. Yeah. Well, come and sing a song out at the Rockaways. We'll see if you like collaborate. Hell yeah, that'd yeah. be <laughs> <laughs> that'd be amazing. Yeah. Annie, that is a collaboration I would absolutely love to hear. A true dream team. Yes, yes, yes. I want to give big thanks to Carolina Berej, who's one of my researchers at Pitchfork Radio and who helped so much with TalkHouse Podcast on the ground at Pitchfork Festival this year. Also thanks to our executive editor, Josh Modell, for artist wrangling. And I've got to thank Annie, the Chicago Diner, for keeping... Our co-producer, Mark Yoshizumi, and I fed with the best vegetarian food in the fucking world. <laughs> I'm missing it so much. I'm jealous. <laughs> I'm just making it worse for you. I'm just yeah, making it worse for you. You're coming next hell? year. Put it that way. <laughs> Today's episode is recorded and co-produced by the aforementioned Mark Northside Yoshizumi. For cool behind-the-scenes content from the fest, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. At TalkHouse. Smash that button. Smash that follow. And make sure to subscribe to the TalkHouse podcast, where we're going to be dropping all of our six conversations from the fest over the next couple months. You can also check out older episodes like Michelle's conversation with Slow Dive's Rachel Goswell. Till next week, I'm Elia Einhorn. I'm Annie Fell. Peace. See ya. 
dude. I want some veggie gyros. Mark, does Chicago Diner deliver to Brooklyn? <laughs>